Once upon a time, there was a young shepherd, a boy after God's own heart. He went from tending sheep to leading armies, from wearing a sword to wearing a crown. He was one of history's greatest kings who committed one of history's most infamous murders. His rise built a kingdom, his fall Good morning again. Been a great uh, morning so far. A lot going on here. So why David at Christmas? Well, when you get to the New Testament, the first line in the first book of the New Testament describes Jesus as, first and foremost, the son of David. There's a connection there between David and Jesus, and we're exploring that. And to help us see Jesus more clearly, we're taking a look back at who David was and is. And so our scripture reading this morning and story about David's life is going to be from 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 10 through 25. So you can follow along, as always, on the screen uh, or in your Bible. That's you brought with you, right? Because it's church after all. You guys ready? Here we go, let's do this. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer, go and tell David. This is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel, who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up here. Our oxen for the burnt offering and here our threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings. It cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. 
David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. And that's God's word this morning. And today we come to one of the two endings to David's life that the Bible writers give us. There's one here this morning in 2 Samuel, and then another we'll look at in a few weeks in the book of Chronicles. But you ask, well, what's up with that? You know, why are there two endings to David's life? What's going on? Well, the thing that you've got to know, especially when it comes to Hebrew narrative, is that it's all in there for a reason. It's all got a purpose. And these writers were brilliant, and they were intentional. And what you're going to see this morning, is both, I believe, the very worst moment and the very best moment of David's life all at once. Last week, if you were here, you know we looked at David's individual failure, his failure as a man, but this morning we're going to look at his corporate failure, his failure as a leader, and the cost his nation pays for his failure and his leadership. And yet, in the midst of this, I trust we're arguably going to see the greatest moment of David's life and see why the writers put it last and maybe. Maybe, just maybe we'll see how you can have the greatest moment of your life as well. So let's look together at the height and the depth of David's soul and the height and the depth of our souls as well through three headings this morning, three sort of categories here. Number one, two reasons. Second, three options. And finally, one mystery. What do they mean? We'll explain as we go. Here we go. Number one. Uh, two reasons. Let's pick up the passage in the first verse that we read. It's verse 10. And if, if you go back and you read this later at home because you really loved the message and you just can't get enough of the Bible and you want to go back and read, you'll notice that the first nine verses are kind of odd and strange and they raise a lot of questions we can't deal with today. So for our purposes, we're going to start in verse 10. So let's look at that. We read that David was what? He was conscience stricken. I love that word. After he had counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly. Now, Lord, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Well, what's he done that's so foolish? He has counted, it says, who? The fighting men. David's taken a census. He's taken a head count of all the men who could possibly be put together to form an army in Israel. And Israel, at that time, you may know, had an all-volunteer army, no standing army. And so David's seeing how many potential soldiers he's got. And this, this was a bad thing to do. This was a bad idea. And we'll see why in a moment. But it was... So widely known to be a bad thing to do that his army captain, even his army captain, a man named Joab, who when you read about his life, you see, man, he was like the original godfather, mafia henchman, a real violent dude, reckless, aggressive. And, but Joab here, even Joab warns David against doing this. And back up in verse 3, he said, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. May the lies of the Lord, uh, my Lord the king see it. And basically, David, I hope you get your army and your soldiers. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? And that's the question that sets off the story. So in other words, uh, Joab's saying, David, he's pleading with him. David, this is an awful thing to do. David, this is terrible. Please, David, don't do this. David, I'm begging you, please don't count the fighting men. Right. Now to us, 
you know, as you're staring at me in stunned silence. Uh, again, this sounds frankly like not that big a deal, right? I mean, what's the big deal with taking a census and a headcount? Governments do it all the time. And after all, I mean, if you know your Bible, there was a little guy named Moses who also took another census in a book called what? Numbers, right? Numbers. And so God excuse me, can't be opposed to head counts in general, and he's not. So you got to ask, well, why was this wrong, right? I mean, why was this so wrong that, that, that even David's mafia dude would step up and beg him not to do it? And the answer is, there are two reasons. That's the heading here. Two reasons, and maybe more, but two for us this morning. And the first reason, the first reason is a likely reason. It's a probably this was wrong to do reason. And what does that mean? It means this. The reason this is wrong and David's counting the fighting men is because he's likely moving towards having and forming a standing army. And the reason that a nation in those days would have a standing army was because their national identity was frequently built around conquest of the nations around them. They would ask, how many soldiers do we have? You know, and if we've got more soldiers than they've got soldiers, then we can invade them. We can colonize them. We can force them to pay us tribute and in general enrich ourselves at their expense. And if this sounds like a familiarly bad thing to do, it's because it ought to. Uh, a couple of months ago, back in August, and we looked in 1 Samuel 15 at the same kind of thing. And then God told Saul then to go wipe out the Amalekites, right? But he told them it wasn't to be an act of imperialism or of blatant aggression or just of national expansion, but to be an act of justice, of justice. And the reason you can know this is true is from the instructions that God gave us all. He said, Saul, go wipe out the Amalekites, every living thing, including and specifically the king the leaders, and all the animals. Now, most countries, most kings, when they were invading another uh, nation, they would at minimum keep the livestock for themselves. They keep it alive. But God says, don't do that. Well, why would they want to keep it alive? Well, because in those days, money wasn't kept in banks. It was in those, you know, little woolly lambs you had running around, the the four-footed animals that you had, cows and goats and sheep and so they wanted to keep them alive. And at minimum, they would do that. But sometimes also kings would keep the conquered king alive to ransom him off for tribute and additional financial compensation. And then even uh, uh, the defeated army's uh, national uh, and intellectual elites would be kept alive to be forced to work to enrich the nation that conquered them. And so what Saul is being told by God, what God's telling him is God saying, do you see these Amalekites, these notoriously and famously wicked people? They're known for their cruelty and their evil and their violence and their slavery and their rape and their marauding. God says, Saul, you're going to stop them and put an end to their violence their violence. And if there is, by the way, one thing that the God of the Bible hates, it is one nation doing violence against another. Yes, this God, he forbids sexual immorality. He commands truth telling. But what moves this God to act in history is violence. One nation against another. He tells Noah he's going to judge the world. God sends the flood because why? He says because the people have become too violent. 
violent in Noah's day. In Genesis 18, he judges Sodom and says, primarily because of the outcry that's gone up against him. That word is used of a people that are violent and oppressing another. He says of Nineveh in Jonah's day, let the Ninevites give up their violence. And in Psalm 11, all through the Psalms, but specifically Psalm 7, says God hates those who do and love violence. Huh. So when God says to Saul, Saul, you're going to wipe them all out. When, it means when you do use military force, it's to be exclusively for justice and the stopping of, of oppression, not for exploitation. But Saul doesn't do it, as you know, in God's name. He wipes out the people, but he keeps the king, the livestock, and the leaders for himself, showing he wasn't in it for justice, but for himself, for imperialism. And God judges Saul and tears the kingdom away from him for that. Now, can you see here, David is beginning to do the same thing, the same thing all over again. David's counting who? The fighting men. He's moving to create an army to invade and terrorize other nations. See, Israel, Israel was supposed to be God's representative in the earth. Uh, The prophet said, Israel, you're supposed to be this, a light, a light to the nations, not a terror to the nations. Rome uh, was a terror. Uh, Babylon and Nineveh, Sodom, they were terrors to the world. But Israel was supposed to be God's light to the world. Their foreign policy was supposed to be based on service and justice first, not conquest or violence. Now, could you imagine if today, if every nation of the world had a foreign policy based first on service of and justice for the surrounding nations? What might our world look like hmm? if our foreign policy were based on those things, not violence, conquest, or national ego? See, the world would be a different place, and we know it. So that's the first reason. It was wrong, probably. Probably. And a number of commentators, translators say the same thing. And if this was the case, again, which it likely was, now, of course, you'd agree. You you heard that case being built and you thought, man, that was bad. That was wrong. David shouldn't have done that. Probably what was going on. Glad God intervened. But that's not the most important reason it was wrong. You say, well, man, what could be more important than that? I mean, stopping, you know, you know, maybe genocide. How could that be? You know, something be more important than that? Well, here's how you can know it was wrong. Because basically the text doesn't really tell you. You see God's reaction to what David's done, that it was wrong. So what was the first and most important reason it was wrong? Here it is. You ready? It's real deep. It was because God said so. It was because God said so. It was wrong because God said so. Now, I've got at least four kids in my family that I've had before. feels like more sometimes. Oh, sorry, Karen. Yes, she's like, what was that? No, no, it just feels like more. That was the point. Sorry. Anyway, you, hey, you know what? You're all back. All right. If you're checked out, you're back with me. So, little illustrative device there. All right. So I do have, in fact, four children. Let it be known and stated for the record. So moving on. Uh, there is one of these four children. And you may have one like I have and one like we have. In particular, the, the child in the family who always asks the questions, right? Like, why do we do this? Why do we have to go there? Why are we, you know, why, why is this happening? Why is that not happening? And on one hand, those are fair questions up to a point. And, and what Carrie and I have to say to him, though, after a while, and sometimes from the beginning is this, something along these lines. We say, 
I say, son, the reason that you don't grasp what's going on here is because you're nine, right? You're nine, and your dad is 24 years old, and he knows everything. I'm kidding. All right, I, uh, back in. Well, I'm, I turned 40, so, so I'm 40. I'm like, I'm like even college educated, you know, and, you know, and uh, you're nine, and you may be really smart because, let's face it, you got some good genes from your dear old dad, you know, and mom too. And, but really the reason why you don't get it, why this is working the way it is, and the reason you don't understand it is because once more you're nine, you're a child. And so I'll say, son, I'm happy if you like the reason, and, uh, you know, I'd be sad if you didn't, but really it doesn't matter either way. Because, son, if you only obey when you understand the reason, that's called agreement, not obedience, see, which isn't really obedience at all. And because obedience only works on trust, an agreement is conditional based upon liking and getting the reason. If you only obey mom and dad, when you agree, that puts you as the one in charge, not mom and dad. Right. Now, he doesn't get that either, once again, because he's nine, but I say it to him anyway. <laughs> but listen, there, there isn't just at least the same amount of space between a child's mind and an adult's mind as there is between our minds and God's mind. No, there is an infinite amount of distance between an all-knowing, all-powerful God who created the universe and humanity and you, you, who couldn't decide what to wear to church this morning, right? And you, who's going to have to sleep like seven, eight, nine hours tonight again just so you won't be grumpy tomorrow and your mind will work right and you'll be nice to people at work and your family, right? Now, you may not like the point here, but the main reason something is ever right or wrong is because God said so. God said so. And if we only obey him because we understand or because we feel it agrees with 21st century Western culture and what our friends post on Facebook, really, who is God in our life, right? Who is God? You are not him. You may say, well, you know, Morgan, this, you know, the reason I don't agree is because there's some stuff that God says that's outdated, outdated, to which I would say, well, I'd ask you, well, what does outdated mean? And you say, well, the stuff that's old, you know, from like a long time ago, the Bible writers couldn't have foreseen what's happening today. If it's old, if it's, you know, then we ought, to, we ought to not listen to it. But again, if that's you, you think that. What that means is this. When you're old, no one should listen to you either, right? You should be mocked, excluded, you know, have links posted to your ridiculous stuff you said from your 20s, you know, on Facebook because you're old, right, and outdated. So listen, if you reject something just because it doesn't, from the Bible, just because it doesn't fit in your culture today, why is your culture better than another, right? I mean, why should you force what you believe onto another culture today across the world or in our nation, right? I mean, isn't that what we've judged our ancestors for? Cultural imposition. Well, aren't you doing just the same? And by the way, did that last bit a few minutes ago about, you know, imperialism being bad, you know, colonialism being bad, not, you know, forcing tribute and all that, didn't that feel pretty modern and relevant? Yeah, it did. And that was from a text that's more than 3,000 years old. I'd say the Bible's got a pretty good grasp on human nature. See, whether or not you agree with what the Bible says about life or how you use your sexuality, what marriage is or what people are for, matters far less than that God said it. God said it. That's just the way it's got to be because either you're God or he is. He is. God says, 
Your wealth. See how wealth you got? It's not just for you. You're to personally help the poor and give it away. You're to, God says your sexuality isn't for you. It's a picture of the gospel. It's reserved for the covenant of marriage. Elizabeth Elliot sums it up. She puts it like this. It's beautiful. She said, God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. If you claim to be a Christian today, you don't obey God just because you agree or when you agree. You obey him because he said so. And if God is love, then all his commands are loving for you as well. Amen. Let's move on here. Look at number two, because there's not just two reasons for judgment. There's actually three options of God's judgment here. There's something really amazing going on in the background. And let's look at it because you can see from the passage that after David recognizes what he's done, then the prophet Gad comes to him and Gad says this. He says, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them to carry out against you. And these three options were three years of famine or three months of fleeing from enemies or three days plague in the land. So you ask, well, man, what in the world does this mean? What's going on here? Let me translate a bit. A famine, first of all, in those days and still today means primarily a massive economic recession. Secondly, fleeing from your enemies would mean that your country would lie open to invasion while it remained leaderless. Three days of plague meant that countless tens of thousands would die. But here's the point. No matter which option David chooses, his dream of a standing army is over. His dream of Israel being in this international superpower and invading power is crushed because without food, number one, there's no one to feed the army, no way to feed an army. Without a king, there's no one to lead the army. And number three, without soldiers, there's no one to fight in the army. So David here, he chooses the third option, see three days of plague, and then, then the most difficult and tragic part of the passage comes next. It says, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 people died. Now you get to that part and you say, oh my gosh, this is what I hate about the Bible. This is why you know, I left church in the first place. I can't stand this. The God who's just smiting people. You know, we don't really use smiting anymore except for like church words and stuff. But smiting, dealing out judgment. But listen, don't you remember what was about to happen? I mean, excuse me, Israel is moving towards marshalling this invasion force just to stroke its national ego and crush the surrounding peoples. So who does it say actually that God struck and touched and smited. The NIV here says people, but that's just its effort to be gender inclusive, and that's good many times. But literally in the Hebrew, it says here it was the men. It was the men. Who is David counting again? Who? The fighting men. The fighting men. Yeah, these were men, remember, who were either going to die in battle attempting to colonize its neighbors, or they were going to continue to live and fight and pillage and maybe rape and burn the surrounding nations. If you, if you knew one nation was going to launch a, a nuclear strike against our nation or another nation, what would you pray for? What you pray for? You'd pray for the weapons of that nation to be wiped out, destroyed, wouldn't you? Well, who were the weapons here? It's the fighting men, the fighting men. 
And so can you see what God's doing? He's actually showing mercy on Israel's neighbors, the surrounding nations. What was the most merciful thing God could do here? He could stop a violent invasion, and that's what he did, showing us that no nation, including those who call on the name of the Lord, get a free pass when it comes to how they act and live. Yes, God loved his special people. Israel had a plan for them, but he loved those other nations as well, and that's what he's doing here. So that's what God does first. But let's ask, but why though? Why does David choose this one? So God gives the options, that's why. But why, why option C? Why, you know, number three? Well, there's something amazing that's going on here in David's heart. Let's look at it here. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great but do not let me fall into human hands. So David's making a choice. He's got to, but why, number C, why the plague? Well, here's why. David's doing what you ought to be doing and I ought to be doing in our most difficult moments. He is bringing to bear his theology and his understanding of who God is even onto his sin and at his dark moment. What do I mean? I want to back up for a moment. Remember, I mentioned the, the city of Sodom before. If you remember that story back in the book of Genesis, you may remember this other really fascinating story about what happened leading up to when God's righteous judgment came upon them. There's this fascinating little story about a guy named Abraham and, and God. And in the story, in Genesis 18, it looks like uh, Abraham and God are sort of haggling over the city like two strangers and business folk in the marketplace. And uh, like they're haggling over some melons or you know fruit or something. But God, it said, had come down to personally look at Sodom and investigate the charges against them. And then, and then in the story, we see Abraham. Abraham begins to intercede with God for the city of Sodom, the city that had actually hurt him, taken his own family captive. <coughs> excuse me, at one point. And Abraham intercedes for Sodom. He says, God, would you spare the city for what? For 50 righteous people. God says, yes. Abraham's like, well, I don't really see 50. Would you do it for 40? You know, God says, yes, for 40. Mm, Don't see 40 here. Would you do it for 30? God says, yes. 20, 10, yes, and yes. Oh, it's an amazing story. It's like Abraham had sort of found the secret tunnel through God's impenetrable justice. And God had condemned that city for its evil, which he should have. And by the way, you ought to love that. And even more so in our culture today, we ought to love a God who takes seriously one nation's crimes against humanity and who holds accountable leaders and dictators to justice and right around we ought to love that right and yet yet abraham has somehow found a way through this judgment and the german commentator gerhard von rod he looked at that passage and he pointed out how seeing seeing god's mercy oh it changed abraham and gave him this incredible confidence. And this is what Von Rod said. He said, Abraham knows, as he basically is sort of insulting us and himself, he says, as modern man does not, that is dust and ashes. He has no right at all to reason. Basically, Abraham's not like us. He's willing to obey God just because. But Von Rod goes on and says, is what is amazing is how Abraham's courage increases during conversation. It's God's grace is willing. How he stretches the capacity of God's gracious righteousness more and more audaciously until he arrives at the astonishing fact that even a very small number 
of innocent men is more important in God's sight than a majority of sinners and is sufficient enough to stem the judgment. And he concludes this way. So predominant to save is God's will over his will to punish. Yeah, it's beautiful. See, when Abraham, when he saw that God's will was to save was somehow predominant over his will to punish evil, it gave him here this confidence in God's heart towards those who had done great evil and wrong. And that's exactly what David is seeing here. He's saying, let me fall into God's hands for his mercy is great even towards evildoers like me. See, David knew, oh, like Abraham knew. Oh, he knew he's seeing a real God, uh, not just a caricature, right? I mean, not a, not a, he's not seeing a traditional sort of religious God who just loves to judge people who runs around smiting puny humans and sort of laughs as he does it. No, notice David and Abraham, they don't, they're not seeing here, showing us a wimpy sort of modern God who just accepts everything and sits in heaven, you know, wearing a luxe scarf wrapped up, sipping a cappuccino, waiting around to take a bestie selfie with you because he's bored, right? I mean, no. This God, the God of the Bible, is different, and David knows it. He falls upon the mercy of a just God. And David shows he's finally getting. Can you see, do you finally get who God is? His mercy is great toward evildoers. And we see that in the next verse. The story goes on and says, When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented. Instead of the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was in standing at the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. So God relents here. He spares Jerusalem, right? He spares the city. His mercy is great. And it's amazing, but it's also puzzling. Puzzling if you've been paying attention. There's probably some questions going off in your head if you've been paying attention, and I hope that they are because there's a final question here. Oh, there's an incredible mystery here. This text presses us to see that if we can answer, it'll show us something amazing about who David was and someone even greater than David. Number three, there's one mystery here. If you remember Abraham's story, again, you remember that even though he, he glimpsed God's heart to save, the city was judged, right, and Sodom was lost. So the question is, well, why, though, why then, if David saw the same thing Abraham saw, if David sees God's mercy in his heart, why was his city spared when Abraham's was not. And this, what we're about to see, church, this is the greatest moment, I believe, in David's life and why the writers of Samuel put it last. What did Abraham see, huh? Abraham saw God who would save because of the righteous actions of a few or even one, but in Abraham's day, the city was lost because there, there wasn't a righteous one whose righteousness could overcome all the wickedness and evil of the city or the nation. But now here, centuries later, right, in David's day, judgment on another city is coming. So why, again, was one saved when another wasn't? And the answer is, Jerusalem was spared when Sodom was not because Jerusalem had what Sodom didn't. See, Sodom had an intercessor. Oh, but Jerusalem had 
a willing substitute, a willing substitute. Abraham asked God, oh God, would you spare the city for the actions even of 10 righteous people? And the inference there is that Abraham could have pushed and negotiated God, haggled him down to one righteous person and then stepped in as himself as the one righteous person. But Abraham didn't. He stopped, he went home and the city was lost. But here David, David sees even further than Abraham could have dreamed. He goes the one step further that Abraham did and he doesn't just pray for his city look at what he does here he says when david when he saw verse 17 the angel striking down the people he said to the lord i have sinned i the shepherd have done wrong these are but sheep what have they done let your hand fall on me and my family oh david saying god i know your mercy's great Uh, your heart's kind you gotta judge evil because you're just but you want to save because you're loving and merciful so let god let the righteous blow he says fall on me and my family he's saying god i'm the shepherd strike the shepherd that the little lambs can live and what does god say Uh, basically he says this he says yes and no yes and no david you got it you you see what's got to be done oh some you're on the right track but you're not the one to do this for me but david's revelation church here this is so great of the willing substitute look at what god does with it he tells david then to go buy the threshing floor of a man named aruna the jebusite to buy his place to put an altar up and aruna said to david look here's the off is the oxen here's the wood for the sacrifice david does it he purchases it and then the final line of david's life the punchline to his story is this last words of david and samuel it says he built an altar to the lord there sacrifice <coughs> excuse me burnt offerings and fellowship offerings then the lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague was stopped you say well, what's the big deal about that well you got to go a little bit further in the book of chronicles chapter 3 verse 1 second book puts it all together for us it says that when david excuse me david's son solomon began to build a temple in jerusalem where on mount moriah where the lord had appeared to his father david it was where on the threshing floor of aruna the jebusite the place provided by david see this place became special sacred to david and this place was the place where he received and saw the greatest moment and revelation of his life this was the very place that god used to build and establish the temple the place where the greatest and ultimate old testament picture of who god was took shape and this was god's heart for his people all along it was to dwell among his people through the sacrifice of a substitute and that's what happened here but 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 what the writer of the book of hebrews in the new testament tells us is something that he was even greater than that it tells us that all those little lambs all the goats and sheep that david offered and solomon offered and the priests offered then those things that you and i still do today the sacrifices we make the things that we think will appease our conscience and make us right before god could never forgive never atone never cleanse for sin in our conscience oh so what would have to happen what have to happen what would have to happen was what abraham saw and david tried but only jesus could fulfill 
Because Jesus was the ultimate shepherd who took the blow for his little lambs. He became like a lamb led away to the slaughter. He answered Abraham's question. Yes, God will save you because of the righteous actions of a substitute in your place, the unrighteous. But, and, and God also answered the question of David. Yes, a willing substitute can take the blow to stop the plague. But unlike David, Jesus had oppressed no one. Oh, but the book of Isaiah says he himself instead was oppressed. He was led away for judgment so that the plague of humanity's sin could be stopped. Oh, Jesus said, I'll take the blow. God, let your hand fall upon me for him and him and her and her and you and you and me today. But he didn't say, oh God, I'll only do this if I understand and if I agree with your plan. No, what did he say? He said, not my will but yours be done. And as he said it, he fell into God's hands and received not mercy, but judgment so that we, God's little lambs, could receive mercy. And therefore, to become a Christian today is to say to Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. To become a Christian is to say, oh, I trust you, Jesus. I'll obey you. Hear this, just because. Just because, just because you're worthy, just because you're glorious, just because of what you've done for me. And though I don't understand or even agree, I'll obey you just because. And when you do that, when you say that, when you fall into God's hands, fall upon his mercy, that's when your greatest moment can happen. No matter who you are or what you've done, whether you're on the bottom or you're leading a nation like David was. It's a beautiful picture, church. Hope we can say Amen. Let's apply this as quickly and briefly three ways before we close here. I want to sort of press your hearts just real quick with three of these things and just ask, well, I mean, how does David's greatness shine here? And really by asking that, let's ask, how can your greatness, my greatness in a sense, shine? And first it's this, and this is the tough one off the top here, but it's just simply this. First application point, church, let's grow in gratitude grow in gratitude. Because what I mean is this, David saw here that God was putting to death a dream of his. And though it looked like judgment, it really was God's mercy. Can you, can you thank God maybe even for putting to death a dream of yours over this past year or past few years that's maybe kept you from doing something worse, though you couldn't have foreseen it? Can you thank him for that? even though it's tough. Oh, if you'll do, you'll grow in gratitude. Second, let's grow in repentance. Grow in repentance. Um, um, last week you saw when David sinned with Bathsheba, what did it take to get him to repent? It took a prophet, right, to come in on him, dig into his heart to get him to repent. But this time, what happened? When did the prophet come? Oh, not before, but after. Why? Oh, it's because it says David's own heart struck him. It says he was conscience stricken his own heart dealt him the death blow what that means is this it means a christian is a person who gets so good at repentance you just start to say i'm sorry all the time i'm sorry and there's no but or because or what i really meant was or if you understand no it's just i'm sorry you 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 get so good at that you don't need to have an intervention in your life you throw yourself upon god's mercy and the mercy of the friends who love you and three finally Let's grow, as David did, in Revelation. What do I mean? What was the big difference in David's life between last week, his understanding of God, and this week? Well, it was this, one four-little word, four-little word, time. 
It was just time. David kept on walking with God despite failure after failure and difficulty after trial. And he arrived at a place even Abraham couldn't. What would happen? Oh, if we just kept walking with God no matter what. No matter what. Listen, don't quit walking with God. And he won't quit walking with you. The greatest growth, hear this, in your life is going to take the greatest amount of time. It just will. We Christians, we're notorious for probably our Americanness, but overestimating what God can do in a moment, and we underestimate what God can do over a lifetime, over a long season of time. Let's grow in revelation as we continue to walk with him and give him time to grow us. Amen.